1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. I just finished talking to Brett Sheehan about his really fascinating new book, Industrial Eden, A Chinese Capitalist Vision. This was published by the Harvard University Press in 2015. And don't let the title fool you. The idea of Chinese capitalism in the title um, is very much a placeholder for a much more complex and complicated argument that unfolds over the course of the book that actually holds that there is no single Chinese capitalism. And in fact... If we do what Xi'an has done over the course of this book and trace very intimately the history of particular figures, particular families, and the way that they dealt with, in this case, changing regimes, um, changing circumstances, very and, and just really tried to stay afloat and manage and grow their businesses, we'll see that there is no single Chinese capitalism. In fact, dealing on the ground with the very challenging um, and the very complex phenomena that were brought about um, in the history of the political and the cultural and economic history of modern China really spurred very different kinds of, very hybrid kinds of practices that really can't be subsumed under the single overarching broad category of Chinese capitalism. So the book does a really brilliant job at weaving together a history of a very character-driven kind of family story of what it meant for the Song family to live through and to prosper, and also sometimes not prosper, um, through a series of five different authoritarian regimes But also it's a story about um, sort of the economic and political history of business over the 20th century in China. It's super fascinating. It's based on a really, really interesting and very multiple and plural set of sources that range, as you'll hear, from um, published fiction and histories, newspapers, to oral histories, missionary archives, family papers, corporate records and much, much more. It's a really fascinating story. And it was a pleasure to talk with Brett about it. So I hope you enjoy. And I'm grateful as ever um, for your listening. Thanks for your support and enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Brett Sheehan about his new book, Industrial Eden. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Brett. And thanks very much for making the time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Thank you very much, Carla. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So, Brett, could you start us off um, by really just saying a little bit about what brought you to the field of modern Chinese history?
0: I took a a kind of circuitous path. Uh, I had a previous career and a previous life as a banker. My undergraduate degree is in finance, and I worked for a commercial bank as a commercial loan analyst for six years. But I always wanted to be a historian ever since I can remember. And uh, I decided in the late 1980s to go back to graduate school and to study history. And I I even called a professor of mine who had uh, been an inspiration. I had taken uh, an elective course in Chinese history as an undergraduate. And I called him and talked to him. And he said, well, you know, if you get a PhD in history, you have to choose a field. Mm (laughs) This is how (laughs) clueless I was. And I said, well, I guess I'll do Chinese history then. And this was, you know, 1987. China was not China. You know, it's not the China that we know today. Uh, It was just kind of it just seemed interesting to me. And I had never been to China. I spoke not a word of Chinese. And um, I didn't know that you don't at the age of 28 learn Chinese and get a PhD in Chinese history. Um, And because I didn't know that it was impossible. I I did it.
1: I love it I love the story uh, so the book itself that we're talking about today it's a it's a really really interesting exploration of a bunch of related phenomena that are happening at the same time so it gives us a window into kind of cultural history political history economic history and family history in some really interesting intersecting ways that we'll get to in the hour to come so it looks specifically at the interwoven histories of Capitalism, And I'm putting this in kind of conceptual scare quotes because what capitalism is going to mean, how it's going to mean, its multiple meanings is very much something that's going to unfold over time. But the interwoven histories of capitalism and the Song family under a series of five successive authoritarian governments in North China. So what brought you to this particular topic? How did you decide to not only write about this issue, but write a book-length object that treated this subject?
0: After I finished the first book, which is about money and banking in the northern city of Tianjin in the Republican period, um, I swore to myself that I was going to choose a topic with a very focused set of sources that were not as diffuse as the first book. Uh, and simultaneous with that, my wife had actually met when we were living in Berkeley when I was doing my Ph.D. My wife had met Roberta Song, the daughter of Song Cheng. And Roberta kept telling her that, you know, you know, I had this father that did all these interesting things. And she would tell me, you know, I met Roberta and her father did all these interesting things. You should meet up. And um, so we, I did take the opportunity uh, well after the first book was underway to uh, sit down with her and learn that, that Fei Cheng had been this really key figure, not just in Tianjin, but in China, who had a kind of symbolic importance beyond what his uh perhaps economic standing might have been and i thought great you know one person maybe hearing his father two people one basic company simple story simple set of sources a great project uh it was only as i began uh doing it that the framework of the sort of five authoritarian regimes came clear to me, and I realized that this was actually going to be more difficult than the first book, that the sources were more diffuse, harder to find, uh, and that each regime has its own sources. Mm-hmm. You know, as you know, virtually every book set in the first half of the 20th century in China has a beginning or an end date of 1911. Mm-hmm. 1927, 1937, 1931, 1945, 1949. And so to write a book which crossed all of those regimes, because people's lives cross those regimes. This was the advantage to me of actually focusing on, on individuals, named individuals with their own life histories. Their lives crossed those regimes. And so history didn't just stop at the beginning and end of those regimes. And so... Um, it became both more interesting to me and much more difficult to do as I, as I began to frame it that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, the range of kinds of sources that you talk about early in the book um, that you encountered and worked through and worked with for the book include family papers, missionary archives, corporate records, government documents, oral histories, interviews, novels, newspapers, and much more. So we're talking about not just a really kind of amazing span of time and not just a, a span of different kinds of, ways that each one of these regimes kept records, uh, is reflected in these records, but also a range of different, very, very different kinds of sources and media. So it's a really impressive um, accomplishment on that, um, uh, along those lines as well.
0: Thank you.
1: So the book opens with a journey. Um, So, And for listeners who haven't had a chance to read it, I want to say just explicitly right off the bat, it's also a really fabulous read. It's really clear. It's really engaging. And it reads very much in a way that... um, doesn't just emphasize the importance of the historical and conceptual phenomena that you're talking about, but also does really beautiful things with character and character development. So it's a really fun read as well as being a really attentive um, history book. But it opens with a journey, and this journey is in the late 1870s. It's a poor seven-year-old peasant boy who leaves his home in Shandong to go to school in another village. Now, this boy was Song Chuan Dian, and as we follow his story and that of his son and his family um, and the business that they open and develop and operate, we also follow the story of business and politics in a very tumultuous period of modern Chinese history. We look at how the category of the nature of businessmen itself um, were formed, and we also look at the usage of the the term and concept of capitalism in this context. So we'll get to Song, when um, we'll get to that school in a moment, but um, let's first set the stage here for listeners by talking about one of these key terms, and that is capitalism. You call members of the Song family capitalists without capitalism. So since this seems to be really important, could you talk a little bit about what that means? What does it mean to call them capitalists without capitalism, and what's important for us to understand about that?
0: Uh, Certainly. There's a lot of different debate uh, in the scholarly literature about what the meaning of capitalism is, uh, whether it is a focus primarily on markets and usually Free markets. The freer the market, the more capitalist the system is often assumed to be, or whether there's some association between capitalism and uh, democracy, or a particular kind of political system, and even on this, even theorists. Um, who say there is no direct relationship between democracy and capitalism, still have, as I saw in, in the introduction, and especially in one of the footnotes, even have an underlying assumption that there is a link between democracy and capitalism. And the, what I found was that uh, if you look at the first half of the 20th century and even in, of course, the second half of the 20th century, uh, there are very few free markets that the state is heavily involved in, uh, economic decisions and that, uh, the idea of some sort of idealized, uh, capitalism is simply not there. Their capitalism is a term that, uh, intrudes on people's lives in the late 1930s and 1940s and is used As a way of organizing knowledge, as a way of classifying people, as a way of criticizing people, and sometimes as a way of promoting a particular vision of the world. So it isn't a set of economic relations so much as it is a cultural construction.
1: Thank you so much. So this is actually really very much in the spirit of the kind of work that the book does on many levels. It's not just giving us a really compelling narrative history, but it's also upending some pretty common assumptions that are germane. Um, Not just to the particular business history of China, um, but also that are germane to how we think about China in the context of global history, in the context of um, global capitalism more generally. So as laid out in the introduction, the book is going to make four arguments. Many of these are about upending assumptions. The first of these arguments is that the evidence of the Song family allows us to understand imperialism. And this is both European imperialism and Japanese imperialism on the Chinese economy in a new way. It brought both opportunities and challenges. The second argument is that there's no single culturally determined idea of or set of Chinese business practices, we're going to see as we follow through this story, um, very different, very hybrid ways of thinking about and practicing business um, among the Song family members. There's also a third argument, um, which is that controlling the narrative of, as you say it, now I'm going to use your words in the book, the place of business in society became both a business strategy and a political tool that was tinged with moral and patriotic concerns. And then finally, the book argues that though the authoritarian governments that ruled China in the 20th century varied very widely, over time, Chinese states and also business people came to accept and increasingly to expect an an intrusive and an increasingly intrusive government role in business. Okay, so as we um, get through the chapters, we're going to see some of these arguments unfold. Now, the first chapter takes us back to the 1870s and 1880s to understand how the Song family rose and how they got into the business profession. Here we go back to little Song Chuan Dian, our little seven-year-old boy, who goes to school not in his home village, but instead in the Qingzhou County seat. And we learn more about how that happened, why that happened, and what was important about this. Now, it turns out that this other school was run by missionaries. So can you open out this story for us um, by talking about this school? Um, what was important about this school, and how did this lay the foundation for what Song Chuan Dian wound up doing as he grew up?
0: Certainly. Uh, this part of Shandong Province uh, was the uh, arena of activity of British Baptist missionaries. Um, generally, the Protestant sects, um, when they were conducting their missionary work in the late 19th century in China would sort of agree among themselves either formally or informally where they were going to work and so you had Presbyterians kind of on the northern coast of Shandong and the British Baptists had staked out this space in um, sort of central Shandong around Qingzhou and they first located their mission in Qingzhou because they did not have permission from the Qing government to locate in the relatively nearby provincial capital of Jinan Uh, And Qingzhou was a pretty sleepy little town. uh, And the Song family village was a very sleepy little village a long way from that town. Uh, The first missionaries who came were startled by the poverty which they confronted. And as soon as they arrived, they began trying to find ways to deal with this, setting up orphanages. And in uh, common with that, not just providing aid, but trying to uh, teach uh, people to. Um, the skills of what they would consider modern life or the skills of the Industrial Revolution as a means of trying to alleviate poverty and give people a way out of this situation. So it was uh, a kind of a social gospel that they brought, one that was not just uh, involved with saving souls, uh, but one which is also involved in trying to alter the material well-being of their constituents.
1: Now, Song becomes involved in a lace-making business that's run by a missionary wife who helped run the school. And by doing this, he eventually helps found the Duchang Lace Company. Now, eventually, they added hairnets to their business profile. And so we go from lace, uh, we go from this just, you know, study at this school to a lace business to then moving into hairnets. Because it's such an important part of this story seems to be a movement from Um, one kind of product to another that gives us insight into where the market was going, um, what was happening politically, what was happening in the larger context in which these product decisions were being made. Can you say just very briefly um, what's important about this hairnet decision? Why hairnets and what happens with that?
0: Well, you know, hairnets and lace uh, share a lot of qualities. Uh, they are very labor intensive. They require knotting, K N O T T I N G, knotting. knotting. Um, and, you know, it's very close work and it's uh, work that needs, that is sort of associated with what we might think of as middle class or bourgeois life in um, the Western or developed countries in the sort of Euro America modern world. Uh, and it would be something that a middle class woman missionary would know how to do to make lace, or, you know, that's the kind of thing that that you'd be able to teach. The move from that to hairnets was demand-driven. As the fashion for hairnets came in uh, the 19-teens and 1920s, it became a standard for Western women of a certain class, say the middle and upper classes, to have a hairnet on virtually every day. The hairnets were made of human hair, which was supposed to match the hair of the wearer. And so at the beginning, they would import uh, Western hair because they needed blonde hair and red hair and brunette hair. Uh, Later on, they used Chinese hair and they developed techniques of stripping the the, the darker color out and and dyeing it to match their their consumers. And so there was this fad in the the Western world, uh, which needed – Infinite supply, practically, of hair nets, and they capitalized on the vast pools of labor that were available in the Shandong countryside to do this.
1: Great. So expanding the business profile to incorporate hairnets becomes the basis for what is then an expanding business empire. And this, as we follow this expansion, we follow Song as he becomes a politician. And then we follow what happens to him in the wake of a takeover by a warlord, Zhang Zongchang, the dog meat general. Um, As he becomes Shandong military governor, there's a warrant for the arrest of Song and his family. Um, There's a warrant for the confiscation of their property. All seems to be falling apart but then they flee to the foreign concessions in Tianjin and they rebuild. And this takes us into the next chapter. So Song Chuanjian dies shortly after um, he and the family flee to Shandong and the job of rebuilding the family fortune falls on his son, Song Feicheng. Now, he was a member of the May 4th movement, and you mentioned that through him, we can start to understand the impacts of this movement on business people. So um, along those lines, can you introduce um, Song Fei-Ching in this early stage for us? How um, is he important for us to understand May 4th and business people, um, and what's he like as he starts to embark on this increasingly expanding business empire?
0: Certainly. Uh, Song Hei Ching is Song Chuan Dian's oldest son, and uh, he was born in and grew up in the same central Shandong area that his father did, uh, went to, as a child to the same missionary school that his father did, but then uh, was sent first to Beijing and then to Shanghai uh, for education and eventually to the United States to sort of uh, learn about the, the world, comes back. Um, you know, right after the May Fourth Movement, joins his father in his business. Uh, is eventually, as you say, exiled to Tanjin by the uh, advent of the nationalist regime and and the change in warlord governments, and uh, sets out to try to create a, a a business that is on a slightly different model than that of his father. His father used vast pools of low skill labor in, in the countryside to create items for foreign consumption, uh, what Fei Ching wants to do is create a modern industrial enterprise, one that uses uh, industrial revolution kinds of equipment and makes modern consumer products for the Chinese market. And he sees both the nature of this enterprise, the kind of technology and equipment he wants to use, and the kind of products that he wants to sell, in this case wool knitting yarn, as all integral parts of the same vision of modernity. And so Rather than a vision of modernity that involves debates, you know, sort of May 4th debates about, uh, you know, anarchism or socialism or the other kinds of things that we learn about in the rise of the Communist Party or other kinds of movements, we see here a sort of industrial modernist take on uh, the May 4th movement, which shows something as potentially humble as knitting yarn as a part of a kind of radical modernity that is going to salvage china that you know this is where i we get into the industrial eden vision one which will save china
1: that's right so this is happening um so this is happening in the context of Um, Song Feiqing launching this Dongya Corporation that we'll hear a lot more about in the 1930s, the incorporation of North China into a nationalist regime and a kind of divide in economic policy that's concomitant with that. So there's this divide where um, Chiang Kai-shek wants to base economy on heavy industry to serve the military. The Wang Jingwei faction, as you describe it here in the chapter, wants a more centralized economy that's going to resist Japanese imperialism. And this kind of um, encroaching Japanese imperialism Helps launch or is the context in which we see the launching of the national products movement. Now, this is the context in which um, Song Fei Qing and Dongya are turning to wool textiles and to yarn in particular. Um, so, this is actually pretty important. What's happening with this national products movement and how does yarn come out of that?
0: The idea of the national products movement is to buy. Chinese made goods rather than to buy imports and specifically rather than to buy Chinese or I'm sorry, Japanese imports. um, You know, it's not, always directed at Japanese, but that really is, by the mid-1930s, the main uh, foreign competitor that people are seeing. Uh, and wool knitting yarn is something that I believe Song Pei Qing came into contact with as a child with the missionaries. I can't actually prove that. Um, I think it's highly likely. Um, China itself does not have a history of hand knitting uh, wool and, and very little history of wearing wool textiles, actually. Um, and so, uh, he's buying into a Western discourse of modern modernity, which sees wool as hygienic and modern and um, knitting as sort of both frugal and modern that he is trying to sort of tie to his industrial project.
1: Great. So in this context, um, Dong starts promoting their knitting yarn as a national product, right? And it's yes. um, called Budding Ram Wool Knitting Yarn. Now, this is, you just mentioned that this is part of, and it's embedded within, this larger vision, right? This marketing vision and a notion of an industrial Eden. So this is the chapter of the book. This is super crucial for understanding what Song Fei Ching and Dongya are doing in this period. So let's get right there. Industrial okay. Eden. Um, What is that and what do we need to understand about that particular vision to understand what's happening for Song and for Dongya in this part of the story?
0: Okay. First of all, let me say that Song Fei Ching is not the only person in China doing these similar kinds of experiments at this time. Uh, he is one of them and perhaps one of the best known of, of them, but they are, it is, this is a very wide movement in, uh, across industries and across different parts of China. Uh, and I divide Industrial Eden into two different parts, but they're all part and parcel of what I think of as redemptive uh, industrialization. The idea that in industry, industrialization is going to save uh, the individual and the nation. And so in the 1930s, the most salient manifestation of industrial Eden and industrial Eden, by the way, is the, the term that I have coined to call these various redemptive industrial experiments. And I think it's a particularly apt in Song Pei Ching's case because he has kind of a Christian-tinged vision because of his um, Christian beliefs and his experience and his father's experiences with the British Baptist missionaries. Uh, but I do think industrial Eden is a much broader phenomenon. So in the 1930s, the most salient uh, Manifestation of the industrial Eden vision is what I call industrial Eden outside of the firm, creating a modern world in which, uh, and it's aimed particularly at housewives, bringing housewives into the um, center of uh, Chinese modernity who are running a scientific, hygienic, and modern household, and of course the knitting yarn is sold as part and parcel of this modern household.
1: Mm-hmm. and they also launch a family magazine right as part yes. of this ark monthly which i think fits into this larger yep. um, framework you're talking about yeah
0: and, and the ark the fact that it's called the ark right both reflects his own christian beliefs as well as the idea that china needs to be saved that if we can get on this modern you know the the, the, the ship of modernity we will all be saved from the deluge of china's internal and external crises mm-hmm.
1: Right. So what happens here um, in this context is the knitting yarn market becomes really, really competitive. Economic considerations become actually more important in some ways than patriotism in driving the market. And into this context, we have the Japanese occupation. And as we move to Chapter 4, we move to um, the context of what's happening, um, in, in light of the Japanese occupation. So how did, um, what are some of the most important ways that the Japanese occupation immediately impacted what was happening at Donya?
0: Uh, in, in a, a, a large variety of ways. Uh, you know, number one, there's another political regime, right? So this is our, our third political regime. We had the warlords in uh, Shandong. We had the nationalists in the 1930s when he was in Tianjin. And now we have the Japanese occupation regime and the public government, uh, the provisional regime in Beijing. Uh, and so there's a political change, and that means new laws, new political authorities to deal with those kinds of things. Uh, There's an economic change. Uh, China's market becomes much more uh, fragmented. And so the dreams that they had in the 1930s of selling to a national Chinese market, it becomes a much more regional North China market. At the same time, uh, his company, all of Tianjin and all of North China, is caught up in uh, Japanese planning for a Japanese centered model of industrial development in which Chinese industrialists and Chinese people have kind of a peripheral role in the support of the rise of the Japanese empire.
1: So you actually talk about this kind of transformation um, to the state being run as part of a Japanese developmental empire. So the developmental um, model here um, is an important term for listeners. This is one of the ways um, that the book describes the kinds of Um, engagements economically um, that some of these regimes are taking. And over time, the new state becomes um, not just developmental, but increasingly extractive. And I'm just highlighting the term extractive here because along with developmental, these are some of the main terms that we're using here to understand the economic policies um, that these successive states are undertaking and the ways that um, those policies are then, and the contexts um, that they're creating are then going to impact Dong and beyond. Now, Dong managers become experts in this context in participating in a new economy of things, as you put it. Um, so they sort of start to produce things that are, as you describe here, essential to everyday survival but not so important that they're going to invite direct Japanese control. And in this context they start um, developing a Gunny sacks and they start producing medicine. So, for listeners who aren't as familiar with this idea of the economy of things that you're evoking here, um, can you talk a little bit about that? What is this larger economy of things and how does this impact the production of or the move by Dongya to produce gunny sacks and medicine?
0: Okay. The economy thing of things is a product of both Japanese economic regulation and inflation. So that the Japanese tried to impose certain kinds of purchasing price controls and uh, tried to allocate resources in certain ways that made it uh, sort of forced an underground economy where things were bartered for other things, and and things became important in ways that they were not before. At the same time, we have rising inflation. Throughout the period of the Japanese occupation, especially in the later years, when holding money, uh, in this case, the the money issued by the the Japanese Central Reserve Bank or the public regime, Central Reserve Bank, uh, holding money was not very wise because it would become devalued so quickly under inflation. And so it was better to convert that money to things. And about halfway through the war. Uh, the Song uh, Fei realizes he will no longer be able to import the Australian wool he needs to make high quality knitting yarn and they need a new product and almost by happenstance they are able to purchase equipment to make gunny sacks and I don't know if you remember this. When I was a child, I remember gunny sacks. We used to, when we raked up the glass, grass clippings and, you know, after mowing the lawn, we would put them in gunny sacks and they would empty them into trash cans when the, when the trash people came. But, you know, in the 1930s and 40s, the gunny sack was essential. You know, there were no containers. There were no container ships. Uh, the idea of the pallet hadn't, you know, and, 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 you know, moving things around on pallets hadn't happened. So almost all kind of small, friable goods were moved in gunny sacks. So that's any type of grain, soybeans, uh, cement, anything like that had to be transported, put on the ships, put on the trains, put on the trucks in gunny sacks. And so they were actually a, a vital product, uh, but like I say, not something like a chemical factory that would be clearly the Japanese would say, we're gonna take that over. It's just, we need gunny sacks. Here's a gunny sack producer, can we kind of deal with him?
1: Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. And I want to highlight this also because I think there's an increasing, um, really across humanistic and historiographic fields, there's an increasing attention to a more object and things-centered way of telling stories. And this is a really interesting perspective to bring to a larger kind of history of things and with things and objects that really embeds it really nicely within a larger political and economic history. So I really appreciated that about what's happening in this chapter and also in the chapters to come. Now, as we move into um, the fifth chapter, we move into a really, really fascinating picture of life inside the firm. So this chapter takes us into really the particular managerial strategy um, that Song is bringing to Dongya. It takes us into the processes of selection and then training of applicants for positions at Dongya. And it's super, super interesting. And it's also really I think, important for um, fleshing out the picture that you started um, the book with, at least in part, which is, you know, emphasizing the importance of these hybrid um, modes of um, what we might call capitalist practices and the ways that they played out for Song in particular. So we see in this firm, as you call it, an incorporation of both Christian and Confucian um, methods and ideas into Song's business practices. So maybe to start us off here, can you say a little bit about that? Um, When you say there's an incorporation of Christianity and Confucianism in ways into the way he's running his business, what does that look like on the ground?
0: Uh, certainly. And so this chapter is about creating the industrial Eden vision inside the firm and seeing the firm as kind of a microcosm or a model for the rest of society that from you will be able to transform, you know, by transforming the firm, it will then sort of spread outward into society and transform society from the bottom up at the same time that the consumer products and publications and magazines are trying to create modern consumer society outside the firm. And this world that that he creates, and this is what he's best known for, although I have a slightly revisionist approach to to understanding this, is uh, a world in which he has uh, a series of very enlightened, or at least on the surface, potentially enlightened personnel policies. He creates schools for the children of his employees. He has after work. Clubs and sporting events and uh, teams. Uh, Employees are supposed to wear uniforms. They have employee housing uh, where where they can live. Uh, They are supposed they are taught to in training lectures. Uh, Under the the category of spiritual training, which is a term that was widely used by Sun Yat-sen and others in the nationalist movement, uh, they have spiritual training. And to be a good dong employee, you need to uh, study these spiritual training lectures and actually take tests on them. And and spiritual training ranges from everything from showing up on time to work to uh, bowing to your superiors to singing the company song and saluting the company flag.
1: Now, to get a job at Dongya, this was an extraordinarily intensive, um, it seems like, and a very, very competitive process. So you outline here in the book the process by which more than a 1,000 applicants are whittled down to, I think, half a dozen um, actual employees. And, that, and this involves anything from, like, calling the name of these applicants and watching how they walked across the stage, right? And so a whole bunch, like hundreds of applicants are cut out of the process right there for not embodying quote, donya spirit in the way they walk across the stage, right? And from there, we've got psychological testing, physical exams, language tests, dexterity exercises, and one of the criteria looks at what their limbs are like, right? Are they yes. um, missing any limbs? Are there any obvious handicaps? I mean, just the process of actually getting hired at this corporation is super duper fascinating. So what was, in terms of learning about that process, what was the source base for this chapter like for you? Um, it seems like this would be a chapter that was based on particularly interesting kind of, kinds of documents. Uh,
0: on the one hand, I have internal um, company records. Uh, I have all of the training lectures and the spiritual training lectures and things that they gave. I have the personnel handbook and other personnel um records and things like that. Uh, there are some uh, oral history accounts from that were taken in uh, the 1960s, that talked any in the 1980s, that talked about how to find work at Dongya. And then I had the manuscript of one of Dongya, one of Song Beijing's executives at Dongya, uh, a man named Shi um, Xiaodong, who uh, in the 1970s, I believe, wrote uh, by hand a manuscript of his time, and, one of the, and the, the hiring process that you just described is for the cost accounting department of all, of all things, um, you know, they're trying to find these sort of young Adonis-like figures to be cost accountants, um, is it, something that I got from, from his manuscript.
1: This is just really fascinating and also um, for listeners who are particularly interested in integrating this book into a larger history of science and technology, there's also a a very careful attentiveness in this chapter to what you call a fetish of measurement that is um, sort of coming out of Song's interest in scientific um, modernity and scientific business practices. So readers or listeners who are particularly interested in integrating this with, for example, um, the kind of work by Tong Lam and others who have looked at measurement and the sort of rising culture of measurement will find some really interesting material here to integrate into that story. So as we move to the next chapter, um, chapter six takes us into what happened after Japan surrendered. Now you say that Dongya here was in a good position to take advantage of peace, but how did they fare um, after Japan surrendered? What was what were some of the most important things that are happening on the eve of the post-war um, for Dongya? This
0: is. Potentially the most revisionist part of my book in terms of the doya story itself, and uh, that is that the height of the industrial Eden vision and the height of the company 's success came under Japanese occupation and made possible by essentially wartime profiteering in having a monopoly on gunny sack production under the Japanese occupation state the The, the chapter about the post war nationalist regime is one in which I argue that there 's a kind of There's been a sea change in Chinese society that happens after the war and as a result of the war. And there's a a toxic environment. It's fed partly by inflation, uh, partly by an inattentive and incompetent nationalist government, and partly by a a sort of newly competitive international arena into which they're thrown. They're no longer part of the Japanese developmental empire. They're now once again competing um, with, for example, American companies, which are well capitalized and and well able to take advantage of, of this market. And so... The the peace that should have, you know, the Japanese surrender, peace comes to China, the national state is reinvigorated, this should have been the heyday, and this actually is a period marked mostly by labor unrest, by strikes, by strife, uh, by unhappiness, and by events which show the essential hollowness of uh, Song's attempt to build industrial Eden.
1: Right. Can you say a little bit more about labor unrest in this period? That's a really striking part of this chapter, um, and it, it really is a very engaging part of the story, I think.
0: Yeah. Uh, this is fed partly by the fact that they hired so many people during the war, and so they had a lot of young laborers who had not been with the firm very long and who were used to the kinds of benefits that were made possible by the wartime profits, uh, also made possible by communists Uh, are also fed by communist organizing and by nationalist union organizing. And there was splits in the nationalist movement as to what what they wanted in a union and how it was supposed to be done. Uh, But we end up with a very uh, active and demanding and fragmented uh, labor force uh, during the post-war period. uh, At the basis of which almost all their demands come back to the inflation. They simply cannot afford to live because, uh, you know, what something costs today it will not cost tomorrow.
1: And sort of going back to this um, idea of, in the language of developmentalism, right, development, um, you make a point here in this chapter that the post-war nationalist state is actually failing um, its developmental mission, as you put it, and that foreign competition really makes it almost impossible for Dongyao wool yarn to compete in the marketplace. Now, what happens in wake of this is that the company eventually shifts its activity to Shanghai, and then it, it sets up a subsidiary in the British colony, of Hong Kong and Hong Kong's going to loom pretty importantly, um, in the chapters to come. Now, the communists take over Tianjin on January 15th in 1949. What are the immediate impacts on Dongyao when this happens?
0: uh the first impact is the peace is restored <laughs> mm-hmm. finally. Um, but then you know within days a work team arrives at Dongya and the local communist officials, although they're very good at sort of restoring public order, uh, they, have, they have no idea what to do with capitalists. Uh, the the mayor of Tianjin doesn't shake Sun Beijing's hand the first time he meets him because he doesn't know is he a capitalist you know enemy that needs to be overthrown or is he an ally in trying to build up a new kind of China and so uh, you have. Uh, Dongya workers energized once again who are calling for the overthrow of capitalism. Uh, and you have Dongya management that doesn't know what state policy is. And you have local state officials who don't know what state policy is. And this is solved by the arrival of the number two man in, in, in the communist movement, uh, Liu Shaoqi in, in Tianjin.
1: So Liu Shaoqi visits Tianjin and he visits Dongyang in particular. And I think if I'm recalling correctly, Dongyang is one of only two private firms that he visits Right. On this trip. Now, there are um, articles that result from this and a little bit thereafter in local and also in national news um, that sort of make Song Fei Ching and make Dong Ya part of the public narrative, as you put it, of capitalism under the communists. And so, what's happening in these news articles that are um, sort of coming out in the wake of Liu yeah. Chao? Uh, Liu Xiaoqi's visit, um, and what's important for us to understand about the transformation, if at all, in this part of the story that comes along with that.
0: Uh, There's two things. The first is that the communist leadership has decided on a temporary alliance with capitalists, at least those capitalists not directly associated with the nationalist regime. They need to get the economy moving again. Uh, The civil war is going very well, much better than anybody expected from the communist side. Uh, And so that, you know, winning the war is no longer the issue. The issue is rebuilding the, the, the Chinese economy. And so they try to establish a, an alliance with capitalists, uh, which, in retrospect, we know is temporary. At the time, Liu uh, Xiaoxi told Songfei Ching, you know, if you do well managing Dongya, we'll give you eight more factories or ten more factories to manage. Uh, eventually, you'll turn them over to the state, but we will pay you to manage them and, you know, everything will be fine. You know, then we have this long term alliance going on. At the same time, Liu Xiaoxi told labor, you know, it in, you've got to get back to work. Uh, we've got to, We've got to build China.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so that's sort of one side of of the the new regime. The other side is that the the communists take really effective and immediate steps to take control of China's financial system and the system of purchasing and distribution. And so although Dongya remains a private or a capitalist company uh, under the early years of the communist regime, uh, it is very soon enmeshed in this web of control to have to get all of its financing and sell all of its goods to from and two state-owned companies. And very soon, it is actually adopting the language of socialist mobilization, trying to meet uh, government set targets, and really, although it's still making profits, uh, becomes a cog in, in the socialist machine.
1: So, the story is, of course, not just about Dong Yao, but it also becomes a, very much about Song Fei Ching. And by this point in the story, I think we really care about him as a character. We care about him um, as a figure. And what happens to him personally in this period is really interesting. So, he leaves for Hong Kong. What happens for him in Hong Kong? What's What's going on there that's important to the story?
0: As you mentioned a moment ago, a few years before the communists took over in mainland China, uh Song Bicheng had established a subsidiary in Hong Kong, uh it, it was kind of a subterfuge, um because he wanted to move capital and assets and sort of a base of operations to Hong Kong without anyone really knowing that he was potentially had a, this kind of backup plan. He he arrives in Hong Kong. Eventually, his family is smuggled out of China and arrives in Hong Kong as well, uh, only to find that his local partner there has... Uh, not been as cooperative or is not being as cooperative as he as he once hoped. Uh, he also finds that he's being hounded. He's being watched by both communist agents and by national agents sent from Taiwan. Uh, and uh, the market for, for knitting yarn is not as good as he had hoped. And really uh he spent more and more time in his visions of some sort of industrial Eden utopia. Uh, when Shershadov visits him, visits with him in, in Hong Kong once, he he talks about establishing a self-sufficiency island somewhere in you know Hong Kong has a number of smaller islands where people live in a communal lifestyle uh, and and produce and create together. Uh, and then eventually he moves to Argentina. Uh, one of the few places he can go be, because he's associated with co- cooperation with the communists. He's in an cr- increasingly red scare America. He's not welcome in, in the United States, but he can go to Argentina along with large numbers of Chinese. He goes to Argentina, begins plans to build another industrial vision kind of place in Brazil, but unfortunately dies a kind of broken and disillusioned man in Argentina um, after only a few years.
1: Yeah, wow, thank you for that. Um, but that's, of course, not the end of the story. Now, there's a final chapter before the conclusion um, that looks at the public vision and the public identity of, of the company and also of Song Fei Ching. And this is a really fascinating chapter. Um, so I want to make sure that we have time to talk about this. Now, the public identity of the company is tied to yarn. We've talked about this vision of it as um, the, the kind of purveyor of budding Ram. Yarn, um, and yarn, as you've shown throughout the book, is this modern consumer product. But effectively and in truth, and I think you, you make this uh, point importantly and very effectively in this chapter, they made much of their income not on yarn but on gunny sacks, right?
0: Correct. Yeah. yeah, For many years, they didn't. They were not able to produce yarn. At least half of the period over which I I studied between the founding of the company and the the communist revolution they were not producing any yarn at all.
1: So there's another um, sort of uh, phenomenon and another sort of interestingly complex phenomenon that's happening in this chapter that has to do with public vision. And this is the changing understanding and the changing kind of public and private understanding of Song Fei as a capitalist. Now, in the course of this chapter, he goes from being um, painted as a bad capitalist to being celebrated as a model capitalist. And this move from bad capitalist to model capitalist Um, takes us into also some really, really interesting sources and some fictional sources. So let's talk about that. Um, How does he become attacked as a bad capitalist? And what's the context that's important for us to understand um, that produces that attack?
0: So after Sobbi Ching leaves for Hong Kong, uh, Bill Ya continues, uh, you know, under a new directorate. And um, the really initial attacks on Song Piching come in the three anti and five anti campaigns. And uh, these eventually become a, a very vociferous attack on him. And there's this huge exhibition talking about uh, the crimes that he and others committed at Dongya against uh, the state, uh, it, which ranged for everything from having sort of foreign made toys and hairbrushes to exploiting their workers. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: No, 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 go on, I'm sorry.
0: This, this kind of attack is then repeated in successive waves throughout the Maoist period and reaches a height once again during the Cultural Revolution. Um, and over this period, once in 1958 and again right before the Cultural Revolution, there are publications, uh, one purporting to be a history, another clearly written as a novel, both kind of fictionalized accounts of the Dongyang Corporation. Um, one is called Spring Returns to the Earth, and the other one is called A Civilized Hell.
1: So, can you talk a little bit about these sources? Because the spring returns to the earth, and the novel of civilized hell both seem really, really interesting. Um, You know, just in terms of how we work with them as historians um, to weave part of the story. So, for you, what was what were some of the most interesting things about one or both of these materials in terms of the work that you are doing
0: here in this chapter? What really strikes me is the fact that capitalism did not disappear. Under socialist construction that, you know, perhaps companies were first private companies were first enmeshed in, in, in socialist controls. Eventually, with the social transformation of the mid 50s, they became state owned enterprises. You know, there was virtually none. Of course, in China is a big place. You can never say none. But there was virtually no private business or private enterprise of any kind. But the status of private business and private enterprise remained at the center of public discourse. And there were movies and novels and accounts and oral histories taken, uh, a constant stream of things produced by uh, CCC, CCP propagandists, Communist Party propagandists to um, justify the regime in terms of the overthrow of capitalism. And, and these two books are part of that, one at the time of The Great Leap Forward and once right before the Cultural Revolution. Great.
1: Now, by the 1990s, as we come to kind of the end of this story, Fei Qing turns from being you know, attacked as a bad capitalist to being celebrated as a model capitalist. So how is that happening and what are the most important sources for you in showing that transformation?
0: Right. So after Mao's death, you know, Deng Xiaoping comes. We have the uh, opening up and uh, reform period and China begins experimenting and looking for models to justify this exper- these experiments in business. And he's an obvious model because he can now be portrayed as an enlightened capitalist because he had these personnel policies that seemed to take care of his workers. Uh, so whereas in the Cultural Revolution, a civilized hell, If you're going to undermine capitalists, you have to undermine the enlightened capitalist, right? Because if he's bad, then the other capitalists are worse. Now, suddenly, the enlightened capitalist can be, well, you know, maybe we can turn to private business and it won't be so bad. It will not necessarily be bad for workers. Uh, So we begin to see. Uh, publications especially in the Weinstein Theological publication series uh interviews with his former executives uh eventually longer pieces that appear in profiles of capitalists uh dictionaries biographical dictionaries of capitalists uh and, and things like that that begin to celebrate the the the, um, the legacy and, and Song Pei Beijing so-called enlightened policies
1: so we are now at the close of the book, Brett. Um, it's been a really interesting journey, and there's, of course, a lot that we didn't um, have a chance to talk about. Right? It's a very, very rich book, and all of the chapters that we've talked about can include much more detail and much more analysis um, and parts of the narrative than we've had time to talk about. Given that, though, is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention for listeners, and, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers?
0: Well, I just want to talk a little bit about the structure of the book, mm-hmm. um, because it does have these five different authoritarian regimes. The, the, the warlords that uh, Song Beijing's father, Song Chuan Dian, had established his fortune under, the nationalist state in its pre-war manifestation, uh, the uh, wartime occupation state of the Japanese, the post-war national state and then the very early years of the people of republic of china and that these five regimes creates one of the threats through which we can follow this story uh and we, we 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 follow it and i characterize each regime in terms of some of the concepts that you've talked about was there a laissez-faire economy was there a um, developmental state, a state which is trying actively to develop the economy was there an extractive state, a state which sort of extracts at the cost of the economy um, at the same time we follow the separate thread of the industrial Eden vision and there's these sort of come in alternating chapters the the company in the state and then the company in the industrial Eden vision and uh, it's a it's a structure of the book that took many years to sort of decide on and one which I think because we're following the story of people actually shows us how these things develop over a relatively long period of time. And certainly through dramatic and tumultuous changes.
1: What other kinds of structures, since you've sort of brought up the issue of structure, were there any other kinds of structures that you tried out um, for the, um, for the book that, that didn't work for various reasons and, and why didn't they work? And I'm asking specifically um, for the sake of listeners who might be working on their own books and also struggling with the issue, which is, I think, there for all of us of how to structure a story like this.
0: Well, fairly early on, the idea of the five regimes was pretty clear. And so I was going to have to tell the story of each regime. It is the industrial vision that was the problem, <laughs> because I, I would try to incorporate it into the regime chapters in some way, because they are Concurrent in time, right? The industrial vision is developing at the same time under each of these regimes. Um, It was only when I sort of broke it out in its separate chapters that it became really clear to me that we could see both the firm in its relations with the state and then the firm as... Song Pei Ching envisioned it as a transformative engine of society in its sort of two facets and and it it was that and it it seems obvious but you know in the writing of the book it was not obvious that the industrial Eden vision needed its own chapters and then the legacy chapter, the chapter about the industrial Eden uh, legacy makes perfect sense because it's the continuation of that thread of the book.
1: And so for listeners, um, when you look at the table of contents, what you're going to see as a result is there are effectively, and, and let me know if I'm getting this wrong, but there are effectively five chapters that are going to take us into these five regimes, and they're interspersed in some ways by chapters Like um, Chapter 3, Building Eden Outside the Firm, Chapter 5, Building Eden Inside the Firm, and then Chapter 8, which looks at the legacy, that take on this idea of the industrial Eden and how this is developing concurrently um, alongside the development of these five authoritarian regimes. Is that fairly?
0: Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes.
1: So thank you. Um, so Brett, now that um, you've solved all, obviously solved all the structural problems, the book is great. The book is out. Um, and we have the benefit of reading this now. What's next for you? Is there anything that you're working on that's particularly inspiring you
0: right now? Uh yes there is I, I'm really excited about it the um it's inspired in part by um Industrial Eden because you know the central argument of Industrial Eden is the one about authoritarianism and capitalism and the fact that states became intrusively are increasingly intrusive in the economy but the business people private capitalists like soap trading became increasingly expected of state intrusion and, and depended upon that there was no discussion of free markets it was a a, a you know an expectation that we developmental metal kind of state um, th- The other argument, well, there's four, but, you know, know, one of the other arguments has to do with this discourse on capitalism. And what I found was that even as early as the 1930s, when Song Pei Ching was trying to justify his company and to publicize it, there was a, a, a very strong moral tinge to the arguments. You know, the kinds of accounts that I kind of grew up on, you'd read a biography of Carnegie or Rockefeller that sort of glorified the robber baron capitalists and how much money they can make and all this kind of stuff. Nobody talked about that sort of thing. It was all, can we help society? Are we helping society? Are we hurting society? You know, proponents and critics alike all had this moral tinge to their discussions of business. So I've decided to sort of take that idea and run with it and look over um, a broad length of time, what I'm calling the long 20th century uh, uh, throughout China. And so I'm thinking of it as business and fiction and film over China's long 20th century (sighs) and going back to the late Qing dynasty and following it all the way up to the present and the, the sort of the, the, the soap opera dramas to look at how business is portrayed and whether this kind of moral argument was just a phenomenon of, of you know, the 30s through the 80s and 90s, or if it is embedded in, in longer and broader cultural um, frameworks.
1: That's also fantastic. So best of luck with those projects. I'm going to eagerly await Um, The book, especially on business and fiction and film, that sounds fantastic. And thank you so much, Brett, for making the time. It's really been a pleasure. It's a great book, and I really appreciate um, your willingness to talk about it. So, thanks.
0: You're welcome, Carolyn.
1: You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.